Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. It's a novel trial that will determine the players in the nation's wireless market, whether that market will have the current four carriers or drop to three. Thirteen states, led by New York and California, are suing to block the $26.5 billion merger of T-Mobile, the third-largest carrier, and Sprint, the fourth-largest, arguing that it will drive up prices, reduce the level of service, and violate antitrust laws. The Justice Department and the Federal Communications Commission gave their blessings to the deal after the companies agreed to make some concessions. Joining me is Spencer Waller, a professor at Loyola University Law School and director of the Institute of Consumer Antitrust Studies. Is it unprecedented for the states to reject a settlement by the feds and sue to block the merger? It's not unprecedented, but it's very, very rare. The Supreme Court for a long time has said that the states operate independently from the feds in the antitrust area, and they can challenge things that the feds don't challenge at all or that they settle and the states believe that they uh, have, a, have a strong case. But it's been few and far between. By and large, the states prefer to work with either the FTC or the DOJ and work together in, in a coalition to attack mergers of this kind. How can removing a low-cost rival from a highly concentrated industry not have a negative effect on competition? What's T-Mobile Sprint's argument at trial? Well, you know, it's tough. Uh, T-Mobile has played a really unprecedented role in the cell phone industry as the maverick, as the disruptor, as the one that not only was aggressively competing on price and service and some other things, but also was the carrier in particular that was keeping AT&T and Verizon on their toes and forcing them to respond in kind in numerous markets. So the theory is strong. It was part of why prior acquisitions of T-Mobile were challenged. It was part of why this particular merger was um, of great concern four years ago under the Obama administration. The best I can tell you is they're positioning this as a merger that would create a strong number three and allow them to better compete with AT&T and Verizon. That is the story that they're pitching in their documents and in their testimony at trial. When the feds gave their blessing to the merger, they required certain concessions. What were those concessions that led the feds to say, okay, this deal can go through? It's not unusual for the feds to approve a deal subject to restructuring. It is more often, you could imagine, let's say, take supermarkets. If there's a merger that creates a very highly concentrated local market, you could sell off some supermarkets to another national chain and keep things roughly the same. What's unusual about this deal is that the divestitures are this rickety package of assets, spectrum, legal rights, and other things. So basically, the two companies are are being forced to or agreed to spin off their prepaid cellular plans to dish um, the satellite TV provider that does own some spectrum and has some plans to uh, enter the cell phone market. In addition, there's some spectrum transfers. There is provision of services so that the new dish cell phone entity can use the facilities of the two merging parties so that all the calls can be completed. That's basically the package. And this is really a lot differently than just selling off some supermarkets and having a new operator. This is um, getting someone who's not been in the business before and will be dependent on the very parties who are merging in order to compete with these parties and with the two large carriers that are already uh, dominating the market. 
So on Tuesday, the states presented company internal analysis done before reaching the agreement with Sprint, showing the deal as a way to reduce competition and raise prices. But while on the stand, Deutsche Telekom's chairman testified that cell customers will see lower prices if the deal goes through. He said, we commit that prices are going down in this market. So how does a judge decide? Well, just, you know, as a former trial lawyer, all I can tell you is documents that were written, uh, you know, contemporaneously to um, the before litigation and, you know, by the parties in the ordinary course of their business are, are, are just, you know, it's very traditional evidence, no matter what kind of a case. And it's very compelling because no one is looking over their shoulder. Uh, they're going about their business and they're talking to each other, presumably in, in, in candor. And that's very different than um, testimony on the stand after a complaint has been filed. The judge is going to have to weigh that. Uh, this is not a jury trial. The judge gets to decide what is credible and what is convincing. And uh, I, I think having these documents uh, are, are very helpful to the state's case, although uh, it is not by itself the end of the case. They will need other uh, testimony from the companies, from competitors, from customers, from expert witnesses that talk about the effects of this further consolidation of a market where there are only four national players. This will go down to three, plus the possibility that DISH will eventually become, to some extent, a, you know, a, a fourth player coming back into the market. The judge takes all this into consideration, but is he going to have to rely most on what analysts say is going to happen? Well, normally speaking, uh, companies don't get a, a free pass because they promise not to raise prices. Uh, what they're trying to do is predict the likely effects. Will they harm or hurt consumers as the main focus of the inquiry? And a promise not backed up by other evidence um, is, isn't by itself going to be compelling. And uh, the states also need more than just a couple of hot documents to make their case. So both sides really have to lay out it's a crystal ball exercise because, by definition, this deal hasn't happened yet. Both sides are trying to look into the future and say, here's the most likely scenario. And as you mentioned, a judge is going to make the decision in this case, not a jury. And he told them to skip their opening statements, trim the witness list to avoid beating him over the head with testimony. Explain the difference between a judge and a jury in a case like this. Sure. Um, now, I don't know this uh, uh, judge's background, but um, there, there's two kinds of cases. There's, uh, there is a, um, there's a jury trial where you have either six, between six and 12 jurors in a civil case who, who um, you know, get, hear opening statements, hear all the evidence, get jury instructions, get final arguments, and then go back in a room where we don't know exactly uh, what, you know, what, what happened. Um, and then they come out with a, with a verdict. And it doesn't have to be unanimous in, a, in, in, in most civil cases. Um, a bench trial this is not a case about any, asking anybody for damages. No one's going to jail. This is just whether or not the judge will issue a preliminary injunction stopping this transaction from going forward or not. So the judge um, will decide all this and has to uh, put forward um, uh, conclusions of law and, and findings of fact. You know that that takes time. So the judge doesn't need the oratory from the parties. Uh, you know, in the opening statements and the full flowery um, presentations that that often go to a, go to a jury. So the, the judge has a fair amount of discretion in any kind of case to streamline what amount of time and number of witnesses and documents uh, can be uh, introduced in a bench trial. And it usually goes faster because you don't have to worry about the jury. You don't have to send the jury out when there's a legal argument. You don't have to have arguments about evidence um, and. Uh, 
uh, and then come back, you know, with the jury in the box to then hear whatever the the, the the dispute of that is. So, you know, the judge has to make all the decisions, and there are very few district court judges who uh, have a lot of experience with antitrust cases. They're just one of, you know, dozens and dozens of types of cases that come before an average federal judge. On average, each judge has a between two and 400 cases, depending on uh, where they're sitting and uh, how busy they are at any particular moment. Uh, this judge has a, you know, has a distinguished background, but but he, to my knowledge, never worked in the antitrust area in either private practice or in government before he became uh, a judge. And um, you know, these are these are tough cases, uh, and and probably it's one of the very few ones in the antitrust area he has heard or will ever hear in his time on the bench. So you know, he uh, uh, he's going to have to go through. And hear some um, economic expert testimony as to what the market looks like, uh, how competition will be affected. Someone um, is going to have to introduce evidence that either explains or debunks the efficiencies and the technological progress that the parties claim is going to result from this deal. And then the judge will have to, in short order, uh, issue his ruling, although that wouldn't necessarily come from the bench at the end of the trial itself. Thanks, Spencer. That's Spencer Waller of Loyola University Law School. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.